You're tuned to Hybrid Pod, a show that presents conversations of critical digital pedagogy, listening for ways to empower students and champion learning. It's the oral side of Hybrid Pedagogy, an online open access journal of learning, teaching, and technology. I'm Chris Friend from St. Leo University. In episode 9, I spoke with Janine DeBase about her style of responsive teaching. It's her answer to the idea of best practices. The trouble with best practices, according to Janine, is that they are created by someone else and said to be the unqualified best idea for everyone in any situation. Now, when I put it that way, you might object, saying that I'm carrying the meaning to an absurd extreme. Not every situation, you might say, just the regular ones. But think about learners for a minute. What's going on in their minds? What do they want to learn about? And what importance does that learning hold in their lives right now? The answer will be different for everyone. Even in a lecture hall of medical students, they might want to understand the same material and pass the same exam, but the way they understand or remember that material will be different for each person. The associations they make among concepts will be distinctive. An oncologist and a pediatrician would take very different things away from the same session because they see things from different angles and with different interests. If you throw in personal background, previous learning experiences, and current life situations, those differences only increase. So the idea of best practices is built on an assumption of standardization, standardized content, standardized delivery, and standardized humans. Those assumptions strip away the individuation and personal interest that drives us all to actually learn things for ourselves. If all we're left with is standardization, the personal purpose is gone from learning, subordinated to the systemic purposes of cranking out more standardized credentialed clones. Now, before I go on overstating things again, let me introduce my guest for this episode, Amy Collier. I'm Amy Collier. I'm the Associate Provost for Digital Learning at Middlebury College. Amy talks and writes a lot about the liminal state of working through something but not completely getting it yet. It's that wonderful, or unsettling, depending on your view, time when you're playing around with an idea and seeing how well it works in various situations without actually feeling like you really get what's going on. You're working on building your understanding and experience, but you're not quite there yet. That feeling is what Amy and her colleague Jen Ross have taken to calling not-yetness, and it's the idea I wanted to chat more with her about. Amy's been friends with the folks from Hybrid Pedagogy for quite some time, and she presented one of the keynotes at Digital Pedagogy Lab Cairo in March 2016. In her talk, Amy presented not-yetness to a group of people interested in critical digital pedagogy. To me, the connection between not-yetness and critical digital pedagogy isn't immediately obvious, so I asked Amy to start there and clarify how the ideas come together. Critical pedagogy gives us, encourages us to ask questions about what we're doing, to ask questions, to not make assumptions about things being best practices, um, to not just take ideas such as best practices to face value, but to actually question, you know, okay, well, best for whom and best for what and best really to, you know, is, is that really, you know, actually what we're talking about? Is that a thing? Is that a thing? <laughs> so yeah, I think that the, the notion of, of critical pedagogy is, and how it relates to not yetness is in encouraging us to ask questions and to be comfortable with asking questions, to embrace a not not always needing to have clear answers and best practices in order for us to proceed forward. Um, I think it's, I find it fascinating. A lot of um, 
people who come from faculty development, there's this tendency to kind of turn it into something formulaic. And, and honestly, I think there's a tendency to do that with pedagogy as well, is to say, okay, well, X plus X equals this, or X plus Y equals this. And um, if you do those, you know, you input those characteristics just like that, then you'll, you know, voila, have good pedagogy. And I think what critical pedagogy is about is questioning that mindset of saying, you know, who, who and what gets privileged when we don't ask the questions about inequities in education? Who and what gets privileged when we just take best practices at face value? So not yetness I see as, in a similar vein, a, a, an interest in embracing the discomfort of not knowing, not having everything be, be just every, ordered and and, and perfectly um, best practiced, if you will. <laughs> so that to me is, I think, the connection. I'll give you an example of, of how I think it's played out in my personal thinking lately. Um, so when I was at the uh, Digital Pedagogy Lab at the American University in Cairo a few weeks ago, I spoke about um, the idea of learnification. I, was, I had been looking at some complexity theory um, from Gert Biesta, um, who has written a number of pieces that, I, that I've really appreciated that's helped to kind of form my thinking. Uh, the most recent was a book called uh, The Beautiful Risk of Education. And what he talks about is that this, there's been this movement over the last few decades um, in thinking, uh, the words actually are a paradigm shift from teaching to learning. And the idea is to move from an instructivist model to a more constructivist model. And, you know, again, when we take that at face value, we say, well, of course, of course we want that. You know, of course we want to be more learner-centered. Of course we want to be more um, based around students' experiences and responsive to student, uh, driving the meaning in the the conversation. All that student-learner-centered stuff, um, we're, we're... we're into. And yet at the same time, when we don't ask the questions of where did that come from and why did we end up with, with, with a focus on learning the way we had, what we miss is that learnification actually comes from uh, a paradigm of kind of really individualizing education, putting it at the responsibility of the individual rather than kind of a community activity, um, taking away the, the relational context of faculty to student um, that that when you think about teaching has always kind of been there. When you really only focus on learning, you start to kind of question that relationship. And in fact, I would say that you know one of the trends that we've seen in educational technology is kind of a push to replace the teacher. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's a natural progression of learnification. That when you only focus on learning as this individual activity that people do, and that's what education really is, then you take away the relational aspect of teacher to learner and learner to teacher that is actually, I think, at the heart of what education is about. And so critical pedagogy and critical theory helps us to kind of pull back from that and say, okay, what's really going on behind this learnification movement? And yes, some of the things that it leads to have been positive developments, absolutely. I mean, I would I would hesitate to call the learnification movement um, a negative, 
But I think what it has done is it's because it's so hard to argue with it to say, mm-hmm. well, what's behind this? It ends up leading to assumptions being made, um, uh, different kinds of inequities being produced, uh, the hiding of certain kinds of important questions like what is education for, for whom is education, and, and, and why do we, why do people go through it? It hides kind of the question of the value of education because it just focuses on the learning, and I think that that um, that shift is um, something we need to kind of question and ask and and talk more about. Um, and not yet, as I would just say, kind of encourages us to ask those questions as well. Let me interrupt the interview real quick with a shameless plug. Amy just mentioned hiding the question of the value of education. That question is at the heart of a call for papers issued by Hybrid Pedagogy in December 2015. It's an open call with rolling submission acceptance. In other words, no deadline. So if Amy got you thinking there, hop online and search for our CFP called The Purpose of Education. The link will be available in the episode transcript. Okay, enough of my advertisement. Let's get back to the interview. So one of the things that you that you mentioned in there was the the personalization of learning um, being problematic because it's 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 forcing us to look only at the student as a product rather than the relation between the student and the instructor in the classroom that's trying to work with the student, et cetera, or the other people that the student engages with during that process of learning. Um, and while you were describing that, I was thinking of online courses that I've seen in a number of places where uh, they're they're specifically designed, basically scripted, so that every single student follows the exact same process and goes through the exact same hoops and does everything the same way so that the instructor can grade things in batches and they're expected to end up with the same kinds of credentials at the end and pass the same kinds of tests at the end. And the most wonderful thing ever about online learning is that we can guarantee every student will have the exact same experience as every other student because they're all going through the same process. Can you talk to either why that's bad or what I'd love to hear is like, what can we do differently online um, with these institutions that are so reliant on the canned course? How can we open that up? How can we make that more for the learner rather than the learning? If that's a fair way of saying it. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think I first say the the canned model that you describe is largely incompatible with a lot of what I talk about, what mm-hmm. the, the notion of emergence, the idea of, um, because, you know, in some ways emergence is, it's not just about the individual, it's about the ways in which people coming together to learn can produce a really unexpected set of outcomes Mm -hmm. that you couldn't predict, you wouldn't want to or be able to predict. Uh, And the idea that all students should end up at the exact same point, you go from point A to point B, it very much drives a lot of the educational technology we see. It very much drives the way learning management systems are created. And yet at the same time, I would say it is completely counter to the notion of the learning community as a place of a lot of risk and a lot of um, uncertainty, and that that's okay. Not you know, not the notion of naiveness would tell us we should embrace that. We should appreciate that about what happens in a learning community. But that does that just kind of flies in the face of the of these canned courses. Um, 
the rigidity of those can courses is really hard to work against. And and I'd say too, I you know I think we'll we'll probably talk about learning outcomes later. Talk about them now if you want to. The <laughs> <laughs> the rigidity of the way that we conceptualize learning outcomes, I would say, in a similar way, restricts what's what's possible. Um, restricts, and I would say, takes away from that that risky proposition that is education. Um, so what Gert Biesta would say in his book, The Beautiful Risk of Education, is that education and the learning process is inherently a risky one. That the relationship that you create between you and a student when you're a teacher should be one where you and the student, you know, or at least you should strive to be, where you and the student are all in in terms of risk. Uh, that that you're you're going with it in a way that both of you could walk away actually having having gotten nothing out of it, um, but the risk that you know the potential reward in terms of that risk is that what the student and you could take away from it is a true educational experience, the kind that takes you and that student to to new places or new ways of thinking or new models of imitation or you know you you name it in terms of what could come out of it, uh, and. And like I said, I think the rigidity of learning outcomes as we currently conceptualize them, I should say, and and I think the underlying theme of learning outcomes, which is that learnification, um, and the rigidity of kind of canned courses, really just doesn't really work. And what it ends up doing, I think, is relegating an instructor to a role of almost like a grader, like a like an enhanced grader, because um, ultimately the role of the instructor. I mean, yes, you could say that you know some people would argue for the guide on the side, but I think what ends up happening is with a canned course like that, you could have an instructor come in who had absolutely no decisions in the design of the course, no decisions in how students interact or engage, and really is only there to kind of answer questions and and grade work, and and. That, I think, is a really, really sad uh, kind of relationship for an instructor to be in. Um, what you can do in that framework, I think, is, a, is an interesting question and one that I'd love to keep exploring. One is, and I don't know how politically okay this would be at a person's institution, but to take students on field trips outside of the canned course, if you will, you know, to take them to places like Twitter um, or open networks uh, to take them to, you know, blogs or, um, you know, you name it, places where public dis- discourse is happening on the web, places where communities are forming on the web around topics of interest, uh, and showing them that, okay, so there's that stuff in the course that somebody has determined that you really need to know, but then there's also the world out there where these conversations have meaning have importance beyond this course. And if you can connect students to that greater meaning, to that greater conversation, then maybe that can help to balance out some of the canniness of the course. The other thing I would say is, you know, it's very likely that doing something like that is risky for an instructor institutionally. And I realize that a lot of instructors who teach these CAN courses might be contingent. Mm -hmm. And so making a risky decision like that is tough. Um, One way to try to do some of that 
differently without taking on as much risk might be to just take a different approach to the discussion forums or, you know, my sense is that a lot of times these discussion forums are already pre-populated with questions, but maybe you can have a situation where, um, you can be on the discussion forums very active in reframing the conversation in an ongoing way or to have what we used to call virtual office hours which was where essentially what we would promise students was when you talk to us during this hour of the day or two hours of the day at different times of the week we're going to immediately respond and we're going to bring you know a response specific to you and the questions that you're struggling with as a student so kind of that that it's kind of like overdoing it on the presence piece to bound, to counteract the overstructuredness of the rest. Um, so in some ways, I guess you could bring in perhaps guests that way too. You could bring the public into the private uh, that way as well. It's, it's Herculean effort in some ways to make that happen. Uh, and it's a shame that that would have to happen. But um, that would at least be a start and I think then the conversations need to be happening on our campus about what exactly are we doing with these online courses that are structured this way. I mean, it's, I, I doubt, for the most part, that we would allow that to happen in a face-to-face way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, it's somehow okay when you do it online. Um, doesn't make any sense to me. I think it's a failure of understanding what the digital space provides, what it offers, what kinds of communities are available. Uh, what kinds of risks and rewards come with that space? Um, so that would be my my initial response to a situation like that. Certainly, it's my commitment at a place like Middlebury and at any institution that I work with to um, to push back against the notion of canned courses like that. You said outcomes are a great way to kill learning, and outcomes are a great way to to turn it into mechanized learning. And it just it's they're awful the way we currently conceive of them. Um, but coming from one who exists in a place where a course has to have a grade at the end, or I have to, I, I teach freshmen, so I have to hand my students off to somebody else. Those somebody else's expect me to be able to say, well, here's where my students got in this class. Or they expect me to be able to point to a line in the course catalog that says, this is what students do while they're here. This is where they will be when they leave. Um, can you say something about how, how a course with a better view of outcomes, uh, your word form was beacons, um, how a course can exist in that sort of environment without relying on outcomes so much? Yeah, and I, I appreciate because I've, um, I've seen both ends of the spectrum in terms of arguments for and against outcomes. And certainly I have said things in the past that have led people to believe I am anti-outcomes. Um, and I'm actually not. I'm not anti-outcomes. Um, I problematize, as you as you said earlier, some of the underlying currents of what outcomes are, are intended to have us do, rather than what we what they could be for us if we thought about them differently. And again, I think this points back to this notion of learnification. What outcomes does is it de-risk they de- they de-risk the learning. They say, well. If we say this, 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 and this are our outcomes, and we can measure directly against them, then it de-risks the possibility that students will end up in some other completely different place that we we don't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And it de-risks how we can assess. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of takes away some of the 
the variables. And that can be very appealing. But I think the underlying current of that is, is problematic. The, the accountability movement that lives under that is problematic. So I will say that I actually think lear learning outcomes can be incredibly helpful and not as reductive as they have been in other situations. I love what Gardner Campbell says. Um, there's this video that Educause put out uh, last year about kind of how do we know when students are learning. And he talks about this idea of the great, the, one of the big issues with learning outcomes is that we've almost made them too formulaic in even how they're written, but yes, how, how they're conceived as well. And so he talks about how we take blooms and we essentially turn it into a, a sentence structure process. Insert students will, insert actionable verb that you can measure, insert topic of course right? And it becomes this, this almost like a diagrammed sentence rather mm -hmm. than an aspirational um, statement. And so he talks about how he really pulls back and says, you know, in learning outcomes, we say that the, the term understand, for a student to understand something is not measurable. So we should never use the word understand in a learning outcome. And yet the notion of understanding and the relational qualities of understanding, the depth that can come into an, the, the idea of understanding. The understanding is probably never quite complete. Understanding is ongoing and in some ways emergent and evolving. That makes the word understand actually quite appealing when you start talking about learning outcomes. So if you can, if you can distance yourself a little bit away from, I need to make a, a measurable learning outcome with those higher order verbs that will show X, Y, and Z, and start you know, kind of asking the question, what is it that if my students were doing at the end of the semester, I would be tickled about, I would be giggly about, I would be shocked and excited and blown away and what would cause me to admire my students? What would cause me to wonder at their work? Start there with your learning outcomes and then write your learning outcomes. And, you know, or another way to approach it, and, you know, this, this comes from a book that I have kind of a, a love-hate relationship with, um, Ken Bain's What the Best College Teachers Do. I, I, I kind of prickle at best and, you know, and it's, it's actually quite an interesting book. But one of the things he talks about is um, to have big questions, right? What if your learning outcomes were actually big questions? At the end of this semester, students will ask themselves, what's the real meaning behind this sociological phenomenon? And they'll be able to formulate a way in which they themselves respond to it. You know, those kinds of those kinds of learning outcomes are both inspirational and interesting rather than being reductive and and incremental, I would say in some mm -hmm. ways to to each other, right? So to me that's how I think about learning outcomes. I do see their value. I see the ways in which they can provide uh, a roadmap to faculty and students. Where I prickle and get nervous is where we use them as kind of these dictatorial statements of 
all students end up at the same place on the same roadmap on this, you know, taking the same exits, taking the same, you know, green lights, red lights, that kind of thing. And I just, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the way education works. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it doesn't account for um, all the capabilities that our students bring to the conversation. And the fact that when we stop trying to predict where students will end up, what becomes unpredictable is incredible. Mm -hmm. What becomes unpredictable as a result of not predicting what students will do is the stuff that will just blow your mind. That's what gets me really excited about teaching. And that's what I think learning outcomes are supposed to be about. So let's, let's dwell on that for a minute. Cause I, I wanted to call you out on your use of words. Um, so far you've, you've used the word risk an awful lot, um, which is usually scary to folks who are on the tenure track because we are trying to go for something that has zero risk and we're trying to eliminate risk from our careers, et cetera. Um, you've used the word discomfort as a, as a thing to dwell in intentionally. Um, you've talked about uncertainty a number of times as being this, this goal to strive for. Um, and now you just mentioned unpredictable. So uh, could you talk a bit about discomfort, risk, uncertainty, unpredictability, these, these sorts of words that normally are supposed to sound scary in an educational context, and yet you continue to use them as though they're, they're the ultimate goal of what we should be trying to achieve with our students in education in life. How? How, how does that work? Well, I think... I mean, when I, I guess that's just how I think of education, right? I think that education is a series of risks, a series of, you know, any human endeavor has risk. Any relationship has risk. And you know, you could you could you could take this to a partner relationship, right? And say, you know, you can spend all of your time trying to de-risk a relationship with a partner, and what you'll end up with is a pretty you know, sad relationship that, you know, has no risk, but it also has no fire. It has no excitement. It has no um, joy in it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the more willing we are to embrace risk, the greater the opportunity for joy and reward and fire and meaning uh, that can be there. Yes, there, the risk could potentially have negative implications, right? Like, yes, you could take risks and not get your tenured position, right? Um, at the same time, though, I mean, I think we always take risks when it comes to, say, our tenure packages. We just, we, we choose calculated risks. We, we try to um, focus on the things that we think will reap the greatest benefit in terms of our risk. Um, I think that the the uncertainty, the um, the opportunity of of education is that we walk away ready to engage with the world because we haven't gone into a um, sterile, predictable space and gotten some learning pumped into our heads and then are expected to walk out into the real world where risk is all around us, uncertainty is all around us, and we have to learn to cope and deal and 
not just survive, but actually thrive in that kind of environment. And in some ways, I feel like education can be the space in which risk becomes something we learn how to participate in. Uncertainty becomes something we learn how to find a voice in. Um, that unpredictability can be the place where we have a chance to experiment with how to operate in unpredictable situations, how to make the most of un unpredictable, how to find joy and excitement in unpredictable situations. So to me, I guess that's the connect I see, is that in some ways, keeping things too rigid and sterile and protected can, can actually be counterproductive in terms of what education ends up preparing us for. At this point in the interview, I wanted to highlight some of the happier words Amy had been using to discuss the draw of learning. Earlier, she had used terms like wonder and joy, followed by fire for an idea. My favorite was when she talked about what students do that makes her tickled at the end of a course. I just love those words. Those are fun words, and I'm a huge fan of fun. So I asked her to expand on those thoughts. I can see where people who teach in disciplines that are that have more kind of procedural approaches to their topic could find these questions around or these notions of awe and wonder and tickledness to be kind of fanciful. Mm -hmm. And I'm still kind of working through that. Like I'm trying to, you know, to me in some ways, the question becomes, well, then what made you as a professional commit to the topics that you did? What kept you going in math? that kept you exploring and studying and learning? What makes you excited about your discipline? Those are the kinds of things that you should kind of look for and create opportunities for with your students. And that's where the awe and the wonder, you know, I don't know much about math, but there are things related to math that I, I wonder and awe about. And so those are the kinds of things that I would say, if you explore and you kind of make space for, that those could be, those could drive the the tickledness, the mm -hmm. the joy, the fireness of of the the work that you do. Um, I, I'm sure I'm you're sure familiar with Dan, Dan Meyer, who does I am. work with, uh, with math stuff. Yes, love his work. And uh, there's there's one video he made for his classes one time that I don't think I will ever forget. When we talk about the inherent curiosity behind math, yes, that that makes kids worry about questions and such uh the hand because this is a podcast the hand gesture you just made i don't think is the video i was oh. thinking of because i would have made this hand gesture oh instead. that one too that one too yeah yeah <laughs> um so the the video that i'm thinking of dan i think he made it for middle school classes um it's uh pre-algebra or algebra class something along those lines and it's so simple, and that's why it's amazing. He shows um, himself standing on a basketball court, holding a basketball, aiming for a hoop. He launches the, the basketball and then stops the video. And the ball is halfway through its arc. And you show that to anyone, anyone, and they immediately ask themselves, did he make it? Yeah. And, and that, that right there is the point, that he has presented his students with a scenario that has an inherent question built into it then the students are dying until they find an answer. And he's able to just sit back and say, yeah, good question. Figure it out. 
Uh-huh. And and then they have to use math to get the answer to the question that they've created in their head, and they're they're compelled to it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I I agree. I totally agree. the The video that I was referencing with my hand gesture, uh, I think, is actually precedes that one a little bit, which is where he had this um, this kind of uh, container of sorts that was clear, and then he put a hose in it, and he starts the timer, and the water starts to fill the container, and then that's it. It stops. And, and what, what I like about it is not only does it kind of create that sense of curiosity, but it also doesn't, it doesn't determine the question the students should ask, right? The question mm-hmm. could be, um, how long does it take? Mm-hmm. But if that's the question, then the questions that you have to ask yourself to then answer that question are different than the question of, you know, what is the flow of, you know, what is the amount of water going into the, the, the container at any given moment? Mm-hmm. That requires a different set of questions to answer. And so I think what I love about the Dan Meyer examples is that, that it creates that uncertainty. It actually relishes in the uncertainty because of the way it then, it begs questions. Mm-hmm. It begs the curiosity that drives the, the, the educational experience. And I think that is exactly the kind of thing that that I think we should see in other disciplines as well. And so I actually, I think this t- also touches on the idea of uh, outcomes versus beacons, where when he presents a video like that, he doesn't say, my students are going to learn this formula. He instead could say something like, this is going to compel my students to learn math. Yeah, And, right, and we right. don't know what kind of math they're going to learn. We don't know what kind of question they're going to ask, but they are going to see that scenario as a mathematician. Yes. And they will investigate a problem using math uh, as a resource. And I mean, that's an outcome. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's so much bigger than our students are going to learn, you know, the equation for a parabola. Yes, exactly. I think yeah. that's exactly right. And I love the way you phrase it. The, um, my students will see these questions as a mathematician. You know, and, and if one of your outcomes in life is for your students when they leave whatever educational experience you provide for them, seeing the world as an agent of change in it who has the capabilities using a variety of different tools like math and science and reading and et cetera, then that to me seems like the kind of outcomes we should really be pushing in education. With the outcomes movement, we've seen a strong push back towards quantitative, computational, and positivistic ways of knowing, and and particularly knowing in terms of, of educational outcomes. Uh, and what we're trying to do is push the pendulum back a little bit towards uh, a little bit more of a qualitative moment that brings lived experience and ethnography and narrative back into the conversation about how can we understand what students learn more deeply than just through outcomes and analytics and, you know, these, these testing and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that to me is, I would say a call to action that uh, a group of us have heard and are really starting to have conversations about how we could inform that. Part of pushing the pendulum back is to consider the words we use when discussing the education system and the perspective that language reflects. Amy has written before about the language of brokenness often heard in education and particularly ed tech discussions. She counters with a language of opportunity that she believes would be a better way to approach thinking about educational improvement. 
the rhetoric of opportunity as it's described is actually from Mike Caulfield, who is a great friend of mine and someone who I respect immensely. And so I, I took that, the notion of rhetoric of opportunity from him. Um, but one of the reasons why I push back on the rhetoric of brokenness and, and others, not just me, um, is because that rhetoric tends to be accompanied with this kind of quick fix solution mentality. It's, and, and I think it was Martin Weller who wrote, who said, um, you know, show me a person who talks about education being broken, who doesn't have a company or quick fix in the back pocket that they're trying to sell you, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost always associated with this kind of quick fix model, but it also resonates with me, this kind of the pushing back on the rhetoric of brokenness, because as a family sociologist, as someone who comes from a background of studying families, um, there has, have been conversations in our discipline for many years about a similar kind of movement happening in the framing of families, uh, the brokenness rhetoric as being applied to a family. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it creates a deficit model. Mm -hmm. It creates this notion of an ideal to which all things must be measured, and that anything that doesn't fit that ideal, it's a very structural kind of, of way of think, seeing things, anything that doesn't fit that ideal is a deficit. Uh, and Stephanie Kuntz wrote a book, gosh, many decades, a couple decades ago now, called The Way We Never Were. And it's a, it's a book about... Um, how we've created these these mindsets about the way American culture used to be, the way the American family used to be, the way this used to be. And in fact, none of it's actually true. These are idealized versions of, of a past. But what it does is it creates that, that deficit model. And in education, I think it does the exact same thing. It creates a deficit model. So when Mike talks about um, the rhetoric of opportunity, and I'm, I'm actually going to quote him here, he says, the rhetoric of opportunity is better than the rhetoric of crisis for a number of reasons. In a rhetoric of opportunity, things which are improvements move forward, which uh, things which are not do not. Uh, a rhetoric of opportunity doesn't denigrate the people who are doing wonderful things now, and it doesn't pretend that what we have now is any worse than what we grew up with. Most of all, the rhetoric of opportunity forces comparison with real-world alternatives because it admits that while it is quite possible to do better, it is at least as possible to do worse. There is no, well, anything is better than this cop-out, that and that forces a sincere analysis. And I, I love that. Um, and I think the important piece there is it says the rhetoric of opportunity doesn't denigrate people who are doing wonderful things now, mm -hmm. which I think, again, a lot of the learnification that we've, that's been happening in education has really created a tension around teachers, has, has pushed us to say things like bad teachers and really created a negative space around what teachers do and takes away from the value of the things that they already do. And so that's why I, I think that pushing the rhetoric of opportunity is a better way of thinking about um, what's going on in education. Mm -hmm. and, and as you were talking about the rhetoric of opportunity itself, I kept thinking about the way we view our students in our classrooms. And if we view them as problems to be fixed, right. or if we view them as you know troublemakers to be caught, then the entire approach to the class is is colored by that and and they have to like the only standard that they can live up to is one of disappointment but right. if we instead view them as people with potential and with interests and with the with abilities and instead of trying to catch them at things we try and you know give them chances to show what they're able to do 
then that dramatically changes the way we view them, assess them, expect things of them. We start looking for the good rather than trying to catch them at the bad. You've been tuned to Hybrid Pod, a production of Hybrid Pedagogy, Inc. Just because the show is over doesn't mean the conversation ends. Amy and I are each accessible through Twitter, and so is the show itself. So along those lines, at HybridPod and at Chris underscore friend would like to thank at A.M. Collier, that's A-M-C-O-L-L-I-E-R, for taking the time to talk with me for this episode. For the record, Amy is the first hybrid podcast to physically unplug her office phone from the wall in order to do an interview. If that's not dedication, I don't know what is. I also hope she remembered to plug it back in again. To hear more episodes, you can subscribe to HybridPod in your favorite podcast listing service. But the best place to go is our home on the web. Find us at hybridpod.audio, where you can hear all our episodes and add to the conversation online. That's hybridpod.audio. Thanks for listening.